Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to Dave Carson, storyboard artist, creature shop sculptor, and visual effects supervisor who worked at ILM during its most formative years. From his start on Empire Strikes Back to bringing the Gamorrean guards to life, as well as some great stories from Star Tours and the special editions, we then dive into his monumental non-Star Wars work, including young Sherlock Holmes, Willow, and Jurassic Park. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 99, Dave Carson. Well, I was trying to think about where it all started, and I, I have to say it was in uh, 1958. I would have been 10 years old and saw Seven Voyages Sinbad, and I had never seen anything like it before. Uh, I was just completely amazed. Uh, the color, the monsters, the music, you know, the world, it was just, I was obviously the target right. audience, 10-year-old boy, and uh, yeah, it changed my life. And I know other people, I ended up working uh, with a lot of people who kind of got started on in their careers, you know, either through Kong or Seven Voyage. Those were two prime candidates. And a lot of them, when they saw Seven Voyage, they wanted to know how they do that, how they do that. And that set them off. I really wasn't, I really wasn't interested <laughs> in how they did that. I was just amazed by it. You know, I just, I just took it for what it was and, uh, and was amazed. But so it was probably, I guess it would have been around 1961, three years later, four years later, uh, I found my first copy of Famous Monsters of Filmland, another another common uh, right. touchstone <laughs> in people's careers. <laughs> so I, it happened to be issue 21, and it had um, it had an article on Ray Harryhausen in it. And it and you know I go that's the guy who did the Seventh Voyage, and I realized he did it with puppets and miniatures. And I thought I could do that. I could do. I could right. do that. And uh, I had a friend who, uh, who lived across the street. Uh, he was a year older than me, and I showed him the article and got him mm -hmm. enthused. And we started sculpting monsters and building sets and doing claymation with eight millimeter. And we never came anywhere close to building an actual stop motion mm -hmm. puppet. That was just, you know, <laughs> armatures. I don't know what right. we had in mind uh -huh. for that. But you know, we did what everybody else did. We just. Uh, we 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 just uh, made stuff. Mm -hmm. Hope that one day we would make a film. And I, and that was when I thought, wow, I wonder if you can get a job doing this. I wonder if it's possible mm -hmm. to to get a job doing stop motion. So as the years went by, um, I did not get a job doing stop motion. I uh, you know got a family and got a regular job and did what everybody else does. And I guess I was I probably was in my early to mid twenties. I thought you know I I, I Maybe I could do some drawings of uh, of stills because in those days there was you know there was no DVDs, no VHS, <laughs> no on demand, you know, no um, no internet. Right. The opportunity to just see a still from one of Ray's movies was a big mm -hmm. deal, and uh, I couldn't afford to collect mm -hmm. them. Uh, so I had this idea that maybe I would draw eight by ten stills, copy them out of magazines and stuff, and I saw. I saw this, uh, there was a guy named Bill Nelson, and he did a series of uh, like 15 ink drawings. He was a big Lon Chaney senior mm -hmm. fan. And he did this series of like 15 beautiful ink drawings of Lon Chaney, and he sold them in a packet. And I thought, that's what I want to do. So I contacted uh -huh. him, and I said, yeah, I you know, these are great. I w I'm thinking of doing the same thing for Ray Harryhausen films. You know, would, would that be okay with you since I'm copying your idea? Can you give me some ideas on how you got it printed and everything? So he did. 
And uh, and I so I did. I remember going in this small town in Southern California, uh-huh. you know, drawing ink drawings. I had I would you know I would find uh, a picture from one of Ray's films in a magazine. I did one drawing from an eight millimeter frame I took off of a TV, you know, I mean, wherever I could get a reference. And I did these 15 ink drawings and I advertised them. I, I, I paid for an ad in Cinefantastic and I think a magazine called Photon and, you know, a couple places like that bought a P.O. box, rented a P.O. box and people started ordering it. I just I just ran across oh, it the oh, yeah. other day. I have one copy left. That's incredible. That's it. And it's, you know, it's these, it's these ink drawings. It's just, you know, it's stuff who nobody would buy it today because you can freeze frame on a, on a Blu-ray and see this stuff. That's beautiful. In those days it was, you know, it was people bought it. And and in fact, eventually I kind of broke even so that, but what happened that I, I started communicating, corresponding with people around the United Uh States. I, I met a number of people who were interested in Ray and we started corresponding back and forth. And suddenly I had, like a circle of friends who were interested in the same stuff I was. Um, again, there was no internet in those days. You know, yeah. you didn't, it was just, there was no one in my town who knew who Ray Harryhausen right. was. So this was a big deal, right? To be able to reach out and communicate. And so the circle of friends ex- expanded and it eventually led to me meeting David Allen. And uh, Dave Allen, he had a studio in Burbank. It was a combination house studio. And uh, he was one of the few people actually uh, making a living doing stop motion at the time. He had just come off of When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth, was working at a, a, a shop in Hollywood called Cascade, where they did um, basically stop motion for uh, television right. commercials. So I met Dave and started socializing with him and uh, you know, met him two or three times over the course of a couple years. And uh, Dave had a script called Primevals mm-hmm. that he was trying to sell, had been trying to sell for quite a few years. And uh, Dennis Murin was involved in it and uh, a lot of guys who I would later meet. Well, what happened was Star Wars came out. And once Star Wars came out, anybody who had a script that was fantasy or science fiction suddenly found it much easier <laughs> to connect with with studios and producers. Right. I mean, it was crazy because that there was almost no interest in science fiction and fantasy. I think Logan's Run was the only thing that had come close in in a while. So suddenly the studios are like, well, you know, Star Wars. We need to we need to do science fiction. So Dave Dave asked me to do a series of paintings illustrating scenes from the script. I think that's the first month, the first payment I ever got working that's in great. film. They they paid me to do these <laughs> these paintings. I was I was living in a small house uh, at the on the beach in Southern California, and I remember late at night sitting there here in the ocean outside and painting these paintings. Mm-hmm. You know, it was really exciting for me. I mean, I felt like I was in the movies <laughs> now. <laughs> <laughs> so I I uh, delivered the paintings to Dave, and he found a producer, a guy named Charles Band. Yeah. Who said? Who and Charles Band had had pretty. He pretty much produced low budget films, and I think he thought Primeval's would be a chance for him to maybe step up mm-hmm. his game. And uh, so he he said, "Yeah, I'll finance Primeval's." And and so Dave asked me if I'd come on as the art director. And uh, having never actually worked on a film in my life, I said, "Sure, I'll I'll come and be the art director." <laughs> right. So we all. We all converged on Dave's studio and started working. It was Randy Cook, who was a writer and animator and storyboard artist, fantastic artist. And uh, Tom Santamon came on to do armatures. 
uh, just a, a wide variety of people. And across town, Jim Danforth was working on a film called uh, Timegate. And Jim had hired Ken Ralston, and I think Tommy was working there for a while, and Phil mm -hmm. Tippett. So I started meeting all these yeah. people. They had just come off of Star Wars, you know, and they're all hanging around either at Dave's studio or over at Jim's studio. And, and John Bird, yeah. uh, you know, all these guys who I would later work with, I, that's where I met them. So we worked on Prime Evils. I don't know. I don't even I think it was a full year before the paycheck started bouncing. Mm. You know, Charlie's like, no, no, it's a temporary <laughs> glitch. Right. Keep going. You know, two weeks later, the checks would bounce again. And so eventually we, we said, well, we, you know, we, as much as we love this, we can't work for free. Uh, so they shut down Primevals. And uh, I stayed at Dave's studio and helped him uh, on some other projects. Daytime ended and some commercials. And everybody else headed up to San Rafael to work on Empire Strikes Back. And that, that sounded pretty cool <laughs> to me. <laughs> I remember I remember John Berg was already working on the walkers in his garage, uh, even before they set up the shop in San Rafael. Uh, so it all sounded extremely exciting to me. So um, I think it was around, I guess it would have been, yeah, September of 79. So I went up to San Rafael to visit my friends up there. Uh, I stayed with Tom Santamon. I met Joe Johnston. We, you know, I went out to dinner with a, a bunch of them. And I remember, uh, I think it was Tommy called me and said, hey, we're all going to meet and have an ice cream at the at the Baskin Robbins. Come on over. And I ended up sitting next to Lauren Peterson and we're, we're chatting. And uh, he said, oh, do you do model work? And I go, yeah. <laughs> he goes, I, we need a model. You know, we've got a crunch here. They've got, they've got two months till the films and uh, they're in a crunch. And he said, I, I need a model maker. And I said, yeah, I'd, I'd love to. So he said, can you have a portfolio? Well, I just happened to have a portfolio, <laughs> but it was all right, work. Right. You know, it was none of my work. Anyway, I, I met, I, I, I went over to ILM the next day. I showed him my portfolio. He came back to me and he said, well, your portfolio isn't really models, but I talked to the guys here and they all vouched for you. So um, he said, I just need to get budget approval. So call me in a week and I'll tell you whether it's a go. Uh -huh. So I thought, oh, my God, how am I going to wait for a week if I'm <laughs> hired on Empire Strikes Back? Uh, so I, I was still living in Southern California, so I, and I had driven up to uh, San Rafael. So I decided to spend a week driving home, and it's what I did. I just wandered around the coast. I met some friends who live in between, and I got home uh, a week later. I got up in the morning, and I called ILM, and uh, Patty Blau was the receptionist. She ultimately became uh, a key figure at ILM, but that time she was the receptionist. And I said, hi. Uh, she answered at 0220. That's how they answered the phone in right. those days, just 0220. And uh, I said, yeah, can I talk to Lauren Peterson? She said, sure, hold on. And I go, click, buzz, <laughs> and the phone goes dead. <laughs> And so I, I got to be good friends with Patty uh, through the years. And uh, we used to always joke about the first time I called, she hung up on me. So I thought, what am I going to do? So I just called yeah. back and she said, sure. And I talked to Lauren. He said, yeah, it's approved. Come on up. So I threw some stuff in a box and headed up to San Rafael to start work as a model wow. maker on, uh, on Empire Strikes Back. Uh, two month yeah. gig. You know, that's, that was the deal. Two month gig. I was a little nervous, you know, at Dave, at Dave Allen's, we were making stuff out of foam core and masking right. tape and, you know, whatever. I didn't know anything about making molds or fancy plastics. Right. And I was a little nervous that when I got up, to, <laughs> that they would ask me to right. do stuff. And I'd say, I don't know what you're talking about. All I knew how to do was make models out right. of plastic. But it turned out that's pretty much what they did up there, mm -hmm. too. You know, they had a special guy who made molds and uh, 
it worked out just fine. So I was I worked on models for a while, and then Joe Johnston found out that I had done storyboards. Right. He said, hey, um, we just got all these new background plates in, and we have to revise the storyboard so that they match the actual photography. Yeah. You know, would you be willing to come and storyboard for a little while if I could borrow you from, from Lauren out of the model shop? I said, yeah. So I did that for a while, and Joe would basically, he would sketch the storyboards lightly in pencil and then give them right. to me, and I would just take them and, and uh, marker them in and mm -hmm. stuff. So uh, after that, I just bounced back and forth uh, between uh, the model shop and the art department, and I got to go, got to know Nilo yeah. and Joe and uh, all the guys up there. It was a magical time. I think there was probably, I guess, 150, 170 of right. us maybe at that time, at the, at the peak of Empire. I remember one day they used to, you know, people would go to dailies when uh, there was work that they filmed that they had worked on that came back from the lab, the overnight right. processing. Uh, but most people weren't, wouldn't go to dailies. You, you sat at your desk and did your work. So that they had what they called weeklies. Uh -huh. So on Saturdays, we were working Saturdays then. Um, at the end of the day, they would have weeklies and, uh, you know, they'd have some beer and snacks out and everybody was invited to come and they would show all of the shots that had been finaled mm -hmm. that week. And I remember going to my first weeklies and thinking, oh, my God, this film is incredible. <laughs> see all these shots. And then I bet it was a, a number of weeks later at weeklies. They showed uh, the previews mm -hmm. for Empire. This movie's about to come out and we're not done. <laughs> right. I mean, it was really, it was kind of a wake up right. call. I think a lot of us, although we had our beer, we took it back to our desk and kept working <laughs> that Saturday. It was, it was really unbelievable that, uh, you know, when you see, I was somewhat naive and I thought if you see a preview for a movie in a theater, it's done. It's just <laughs> right. on a shelf somewhere waiting to be distributed. Right. And not the case, not the case. So I worked on, I worked on Empire. It wrapped up. Uh, they they uh, told me that they were going to have to lay me off. And um, at the same time, Dragon Slayer had come in. And Phil Tippett was working on uh, on, on uh, Dragon Slayer. And he also, but he also had some Tauntaun shots he needed to finish. So he wanted to, he wanted to sculpt some uh, test designs for the dragon. Um, but he didn't have time to sculpt them himself. So he and John Berg hired a sculptor out of San Francisco to come in. And the idea was Phil would describe it or rough it in, and then this sculptor that they hired would refine right. it and, and make it better so that Phil could go back and do the Tauntaun shots. Well, the guy they hired, it turned out, actually couldn't sculpt. Mm. I don't know what it was he did, but it, it, he, he, was not, he was not a mm. sculptor. So I heard about this and said, hey, you know, I'll, I'll, I could sculpt your, uh, how about <laughs> if right. I do it? And I, and I asked, I said, do you guys remember I was sculpting a dinosaur for Primeval's? And I know they had come over to Dave's shop. And I said, do you guys remember that dinosaur I was sculpting? And now they really didn't remember <laughs> it. But they said, you know, sculpt something for us and bring it in to look at. And I, I said, okay. So uh, over the next uh, few nights, I, I think I actually put it off until the last moment. I found a, a National Geographic that had a picture of an alligator, and uh, I, I sculpted this alligator. I roughed it in. Then I realized I only needed to detail half of it. They'd get the right. idea. So I detailed half the alligator, and I brought it in and showed it to them. They're like, yeah, you're hired. <laughs> so I got, I got hired, you know, just... Skin of my yeah. teeth did not get laid off. Went right from Empire to Dragon Slayer, 
And ironically, as I recall, I never actually sculpted any dragons. Mm. I, I went on, but they almost immediately, I think I got involved in um, laying out the caves. Mm. The challenge for the dragon was he was go motion, which right. meant he had rods coming off all four feet and his head. And so having him walk through a cave was very problematic because the rods needed to go. They needed to leave the cave. Right. Plus, they, they had to light him, which is hard in a cave. So instead of an actual continuous cave, the plan was to build a series of facades so that if you look from the camera point of view, it looked like a continuous cave. But from the side, it was actually a series of cave slices. Right. And that was left room for the rod. So I worked out a system where I would take a storyboard and I would do a more detailed drawing of what that shot would look like right. through the camera. And then I would do a projection that would show how to break that down into slices right. and what size they would need to be. And then we would hand those drawings off to the model shop and they built the actual cave bits. Mm -hmm. And then we would assemble it all on the set and it would look like a cave and the dragon had a place for all of his rods to go and there was a way to get light in there. So that's mostly what I remember doing. We did some sculpting and there were some baby dragons. I remember mm -hmm. helping doing some sculpting on that and just general, you know, helping out as I could. But mostly that's as what I remember from Dragon Slayer is the um, caves. So that kind of established uh, that I was at ILM for good in my mind. <laughs> right. In my mind. It's a, you know, it's a nebulous business. It's really tough. Yeah. Every time a film ends, you're out of work. Right. And uh, even if, even a place like ILM where there is a certain continuity, it's you, you do sometimes hit some dry spells. But I was pretty lucky. Yeah. I kinda, I, for the most part, I was able to go from project to project. I love it. And I mean, I, I especially love talking about Dragon Slayer because in my mind, it is that bridge between Empire and, and Jedi in terms of effects work and like really leveling up so that by the time you get to Jedi, you know, you're, you're just right into it and, and know what you're doing even more so. And I'd love to talk now about your, your Jedi work and what kind of, what did you end up working on and how did you kind of even level up your own skills uh, on that project? The thing that happened was George wanted to see uh, maquettes. Mm -hmm. He wanted to see uh, test designs for creatures. He, he had planned for there to be quite a few uh, creatures in the movie. Right. And so they set up a creature shop. We, right. we actually uh, rented a space near, near ILM proper. And they set up a creature shop. And the first thing we did is we started sculpting maquettes. We just make up monsters. Right. There was a character in the script. I don't even think I had read the script at that point. They would just give us bits of description. Uh -huh. And there was a character uh, called the Pig Guard. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I, I don't know if they were actually called Gamorrean Guards at that time. Mm -hmm. We just called them the Pig Guards. Right. And, and so I did a sculpture of, of uh, what I thought the Pig Guard would look like. And, and so we just did all these maquettes. Right. And George would come in like once a week, and he would put a red sticker on the, on the sculpts that he liked. And the rest of them, you know, were rejects and would do the same thing the following week. And so that that's how we got started. And uh, he, he approved my my sculpt of the uh, the Gamorrean guard. <laughs> right. And so then I did a full figure one. The first one was just a head. Mm -hmm. And the next one I did was kind of full figure. And um, and then we started making we started making the costumes. Right. Well, that was that was I think all of us. That was new to us. Uh -huh. I mean, the sculptures were now suddenly quite large. I mean, they're big enough. And so we started working in wet clay. Mm. Normally, we work in plasticine, which is a you know got a nice consistency and it doesn't dry, and that's what you would normally make a uh, a sculpture for a stop motion puppet out of. But these were big, and so we're working in wet clay. So in terms of developing my skills, that was new. Right. And I loved 
you it was it was so fun it's so tactile mm. and you get in there and you know you can let it dry and do some sculpting and yeah. then you can spritz it with water and bring it back and yeah i really i learned to love the wet clay and we just there was just a group of us going in every day making these sculptures over over plaster heads that would eventually become masks and phil asked me he was really in and he was there was so much work to be done plus he had the managerial tasks mm-hmm. you know was running the thing and he was he was really overwhelmed with the amount of work and he asked me if i would take over the pig guards mm-hmm. and actually supervise their construction so uh, i agreed to do that and uh, ended up making the i sculpted the sculpted the pig guards and got them built and so that was you know that's what we did for months right make all these creatures and then um we shipped them off to england and then phil and i and we went over to england wow. to uh, help them shoot the monsters right. i remember uh, the first day we got to england and it was snowing uh-huh. it was very unusual in london i mean it snows in england but right. it's unusual for it to snow enough to stick but it was beautiful right. i mean all the little spires and the churches and everything all dusted with snow and we went out to Elstree, and there's snow on the ground, and we walk into the soundstage, and it's Tatooine. Mm. It's like the weirdest <laughs> chance. <of snow>. Uh-huh. <laughs> so uh, yeah, we we worked on the on the um, uh, on Jabba's palace right. with uh, all the creatures, and mostly what we would do, we would we would get the 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 costumes all set up for the people to wear, mm-hmm. and then uh, every time they'd call cut, would run out with these. We had these hair dryers uh-huh. that had been modified, so they didn't put out any heat; they only put out air. And we'd run out, and the guys would take the masks <laughs> off, right. with, you know, blow cool air on them, right. and uh, to make it more endurable. Some of the some of the performers were quite good. Some of them were not. Right. The pig guards, in particular, the first day that we shot with pig guards. They were terrible. Right. They had we had we had assumed that there would be like you know these actors, right. and they just hired extras. Right. These were guys who were like normally cab drivers, right. you know. And uh, to them, a day of work at the studio would be sitting around playing cards until the one brief shot that they had to walk by in the background. And they're wearing these these pig costumes that are heavy, right. hot, and they're just they're waddling would be the best way to describe their acting. So um, Phil Tippett. He, I don't know how he did it, but he tracked down a group of mines mm-hmm. in London and contacted them and said, you guys want to come in? And they came in and these like these 30 year old guys, buff. They knew how to, you know, they're all about posing and they took over the pig guard roles and it, it made a huge difference. Yeah. And then, so then that's what we did. We just, you know, we just helped out with all the shooting until, until all the monster stuff was done. I love it. Yeah. And cause then those mimes ended up playing, I think, a bunch of different roles inside Chavez Palace oh, as well. Really? Yeah. Uh, I know, like, S- Simon Williamson, one of them, who replaced oh, one yes. of the ones that fainted, I think played also, like, Max Rebo and stuff like that as well. But kind of... Awesome. Yeah. And, I, I mean, you were talking to... I'm the biggest Chavez Palace fan, just because of all the creatures and everything. So, And I have... I don't know if you can see. I have a replica of a Phil Tippett maquette I, of his Chava. the maquette. I remember that maquette very well. Yeah. So... Yeah. Uh, I'm anyway big fan, obviously, of all of that. It was it was it was very exciting to be to be on the on the set. Yeah. It really was. I, I, there was a there was a day on the set where three PO is standing just uh, next to Jabba, just in front of his tail, and um, and during the shot, he's just you know gesturing as he does, and he takes a step back, uh-huh. but trips over Jabba's tail, and he falls back. And he's on his back in this costume, and uh, he can't he can't really stand up, and the whole stage goes quiet. Mm-hmm. 
And Dave Tomlinson, who was the AD, goes, well, come on, boys, help him up, get over there, help him up. And a bunch of guys run over. And the, the second AD is standing next to me, and he leans over and he goes, but it is funny, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this is a Star Wars podcast, obviously, but I would be very remiss not to talk about your work on one of my favorite Star Trek movies, which is Star Trek Three: Search for Spock. And yeah. what you were talking about earlier with how you were communicating not only with the art department, but also effects, I think really played a key part in, in your work there. And I'd love to talk a little bit about Star Trek Three. Well, the exciting thing, uh, Nilo Rodas, uh, I, I you know, worked with him doing storyboards on Empire. And so he, um, it was the very tail end of Jedi. And he asked Phil Tippett if he could steal me. And he, he insisted, Nilo insisted that I take a week off and, uh-huh. and then come and start doing concept art uh, for, for Trek. And the right. thing that was really cool, and I, I think Phil Norwood was uh, was with us as well at that time. And the thing that was great is that they were, uh, Harv Bennett and Leonard were giving us rough drafts and outlines to work from. So we had mm-hmm. input. We would do concept art and that we felt, you know, we, it was like we could contribute any kind of a, a sketch we wanted or a, a, a drawing and it might you know affect the the shape of the film we, we were they were giving us a lot of creative input they were great to work with and so right. uh, yeah that's what we did is a bunch of concept art and then uh, then a lot of storyboarding and then I don't remember if I did any actual model work I don't remember doing I don't remember what happened after I was uh, oh I, I went on to another project but I don't remember what <laughs> I mean, but even your projects between Star Wars and then um, the eventual special editions, I'd love to just hit on briefly, because again, it's just like young Sherlock Holmes, of course, being the stained glass man as the first effects. Did you Were you involved with Dennis Muir at all during that, or were you doing separate effects work? No, I was working with Dennis. I'm doing uh, concept art and storyboards, and uh-huh. my first art of the stained glass man, uh, he was like a solid, you know, uh-huh. in a man, but glass, and right. walking along, I had no idea how, how we would have created such a thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, the art came back, and, and, and the director said, no, 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 I want him to be flat, like like uh-huh. glass. And so we changed the art <laughs> to reflect that. And right. I think Dennis realized that the only hope would be to take it into computer graphics, which was a non-existent department at the time. Right. You know, We had Pixar next door, and they had done the Genesis effect. This would have been stepping to a whole nother level for them to create this stained glass man. And as, as you probably, you may have seen the photos, Dennis was also having a stop motion version of it made at the same time so that we could switch tracks, you know, the minute the CG approach turned out not to work. But it did work. Uh, they did a great job. And uh, it was it was fun to work with the, the computer graphics guys. Uh, it was all yeah. new stuff over there. Brand new. I mean, everybody, that was all cutting edge stuff. Of course, John Lasseter just doing mm-hmm. a great job. And uh, yeah, that was that was a good project. It is. I mean, that's the first. And then you go to Willow, obviously, as being the next. And then you, you progress and progress. One thing that stands out to me with your extensive filmography is, I'd love to talk about it, because my other like weird obsession is especially Disney and Star Wars and how they interacted so early on. And, and not only did you work on Star Tours, but also Body Wars, which were very similar in terms of how they were simulator rides. But I wonder if you have any stories or any memories of working, especially on the original Star Tours. I, it was a, it was very exciting for me. 
I went to Disneyland in 1956. It had been open one year. I think uh-huh. I was uh, eight. <laughs> I love Disneyland. You know, I grew up right. in Southern California, and it's you know, when it was your birthday, you got to go to Disneyland. So I was a huge Disneyland fan. And I don't know if you can see it, but there's a gigantic map of Disneyland just above my desk. Uh, uh-huh. So when I found out that the guys from Disney had come up and wanted to talk about a ride. And uh, Dennis Murin was assigned to the project, and he he brought me in as the as the art director. Uh, it was very exciting, very exciting. And um, Tony Baxter and Tom right. Fitzgerald they came up. Uh, they had this outline for the ride. Uh-huh. I still remember it was printed on. You remember the early Macintosh, the dot matrix uh, printer? I remember they saw so there was this outline. They had typed it up in their hotel room. It would have been a 20-minute ride. I mean, it went all, <laughs> over, you know, went all over the universe. All these exciting things, all this right. stuff happened. And um, I think it was George who who had. I think I know for sure. One of George suggested that what's really fun when you're at Disneyland is when you see the tracks of the places you you don't go. The, you uh-huh. know, the ride where the carts go at night, you know, uh-huh. the tours where he said what would be fun is to go there, go into places, go into a place where you don't go. That was George's idea. And George's other idea was you've got to make it a lot simpler. And, right. and so we pared everything down and um, I started storyboarding. They We came up with a script that was much simpler and straightforward. And I started storyboarding. And the really fun thing for me was trying to figure out how do you cut because there is no cuts it's a continuous five minute point of view and i realized the only way you can cut is to take a right angle you know you just you turn the it's like okay that this new thing needs to happen the ship has to go off in a new direction and it's like a cut only you just now we point over there now we point over there once i worked that out it it was pretty straightforward and it was fun the storyboards I, I had these storyboards, uh, a large sheet, and one in the center would be a storyboard of what's up on the screen, mm. and to the right would be what you're seeing on the TV screen, right. and then down below was what um, the little robot was doing. Uh, and so I, all three you know, had to be coordinated as to what, what was going on, and that was a fun way to storyboard, where I had like three visual elements to, to synchronize yeah. the activity. So it was really fun, and we would go down to um, actually, we the first thing we did is flew to England to mm-hmm. uh, to, to see the simulator. Oh yeah, we flew to England and uh, <laughs> a, a several. <laughs> so funny, several of the uh, of the Disney executives came, and a couple of them couldn't write it. It just made uh, them too dizzy, you know. Too yeah. they're like I can't. They couldn't do it. <laughs> but the rest of us wrote it, and right. uh, they gave us a nice demo. In fact, God, the day we went. They were having a big, uh, this company, that's what they did, is make giant flight simulators. <laughs> right. And they had uh, they had just finished a, a presentation to a client. And so they had this this flight simulator all set up. And they said, guys, come on in, come on in. And yeah. it was this big, like, C-32 cargo plane flying uh-huh. over Korea. And uh-huh. it was amazing. And they right. let they actually let us fly. <laughs> you know, and I'm flying this, like, and it's so realistic. And I'm flying, and this voice suddenly comes on, pull up, pull up, you're too low. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, you really take it seriously. And they told, they actually told us they have, they have had a, a pilot have a heart attack because, wow. you know, they have to, they have to get re, 
tested periodically and they do it on these right. simulators and they purposely have stuff go wrong. And it is, it really, you, you wow. know, you get into it. So right. anyway, it was very exciting to, um, to ride the actual simulators. It helped a lot to get a sense of what they can do and what they can't do and what they, what they, they have to have some recharge time. So if mm. they go, if you have the simulator simulated, if it's pulling, you know, sharply to the left, it needs to do very little for a while so, the, <laughs> so that the pneumatics or hydraulics can build right. back up. And the other thing it can't do, it can't drop. They, mm. It just can't dump hydraulics that fast. So we learned those right. two things that you have to, you know, you make your big move and you right. give it a little time and then you make your next big move and you never do a steep drop. And so just that was worth it to going over there just to learn that. Yeah. And, uh, then we went back and we started started filming it and um we would go down to eventually they got a simulator down at wed not at disneyland yet but at wed and we would go down there and and ride it so that we would see you know because they were doing the programming we were doing the filming and we would go down and meet and talk and and view and then eventually they got all three simulators at disneyland and we would go down there and so going backstage at Disneyland and you yeah. know, riding the simulator, it was all very <laughs> exciting. Very exciting for me. Yeah. Working with those guys was a real good experience. And that's funny that you mentioned the executives getting sick. Because when I went for the first time to Disneyland when I was five, probably, my dad was like, we're not going to, we're not going <laughs> to. And so I don't know. I, I was like, this is, I, I was five and excited, but he made the cast members turn off the motion for Star Tours. And we wrote <laughs> it privately. And we just watched the movie and Rex was, you know, playing around and then we left. And I was like, that was still cool. <laughs> but it was funny then, you know, five years later, actually getting to ride the real thing. Like, oh, it moves. It Good moves. to know. <laughs> I remember we went down and, um, you know, they do soft openings. You know, they'll do it they'll like if they've got a ride. And so we went down. They did a soft opening and, and let people come in. And, and uh, Dennis and I went in and, and Tony... And wrote it with. They didn't know we were anybody, right. and uh, for the you know with an actual audience for the first time, and they loved it so much. <laughs> it was really a charge. You know, we yeah. walked out of there just beaming because it was uh, so clearly successful. That's great. Yeah. No, and it really, it really is probably one of my favorite like Disney land disney world things of, of all time. Even that original Star Tours. We talked about young Sherlock Holmes, and then of course. Willow and Jurassic Park, both, you know, in this forefront of, of digital technology, you worked on both. And what were your experiences on those? And kind of how did you see technology changing as you kind of progressed through your career like that? Willow, I was a visual effects art director. Um, I brought in a guy that I had, uh, he had sent up a portfolio from Los Angeles, and he was David Lowry. And uh, all the time that I was an art director, I don't think I got one portfolio from anybody that was really usable as somebody who might come in and, and actually be a, an art director or a storyboard artist. But Dave's stuff was fantastic. And I brought him up and he became the storyboard artist on Willow. He eventually right. left ILM and went on to be one of the best and best known storyboard artists in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. He works with Steven a lot and he, he's a great guy. But uh -huh. uh, so Dave was a storyboard artist. Uh, we had a number of people doing concept art, and um, <laughs> it was a, it was great to work with George and Ron Howard. They were right there. They would come in and look over the boards, and you know, talk. And it was, right. you know, they are they really are great people to work with. And uh, it was fun to see that we did a lot of the the uh, blue screen work right there on the stage at ILM. So we were, it was like there we were in the midst of a movie being made, which isn't 
it's the case when you're working in visual effects. Um, in terms of technology, of course, the, the thing I remember most about technology is, is there was a scene in the script where Willow using a wand, maybe it isn't Willow, somebody uses a wand and, uh, it, and changes animals from one, a bunch of these animals change from one to another. And at, at, by then, Pixar had been split off and ILM had its own computer graphics division now. It was pretty new. They were heading up the department. Uh, and we had, I remember we had a meeting with, uh, it was Doug Kay, George Jablov, myself and Dennis, uh, to talk about how they were going to do the transition of these animals. And they had assumed that what they would do is build computer models of each of the animals with the same number of vertices mm -hmm. so that you could just, you know, do a transition by changing the shape over. But their concern was they couldn't yet do hair. So uh -huh. like, how were they going to do a tiger? How were they going right. to do a doe, even a deer? I just, you know, they didn't know how they were going to do the hair. So we were kicking this around and I said, well, instead of doing it as a 3D model, since the computer knows where all the pixels are, couldn't you just shift it from you know, the picture of a, a lion to the picture of a turtle, but have it shift gradually. Uh -huh. And they said, you know, I think somebody <laughs> did some work along those lines at right. one year. That's not a bad idea. Let's look into that. And that was more. That's how more. Yeah, really. It's a, the, the, the idea to treat it as a two-dimensional problem instead of a three-dimensional right. problem. So that I do remember that. And that's how they did it. That's crazy. And then, of course, jumping to I, there was the abyss. And then Jurassic is really then when George Lucas especially knew that it was time to go back to the special editions. But working on Jurassic Park, what was that like? Especially, the, I think that's kind of the bridge in my mind of, okay, we, 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 we tested the, the physical stop motion or we saw what that could do and we kind of paired it alongside what the computers could potentially do for the dinosaurs. What was that like for you and your team? Well, I, I, was, uh, I was working on Jurassic with Dennis. I don't remember what my initial role was going to be, but it was a very slow time at ILM. And so there was a couple guys who had, had some time to do some, some tests, some dinosaur and the computer tests, and um, they were pretty promising. And they showed them to uh, Stephen, and you know everybody admitted, yeah, that's how we that's how we need to do it. And mm -hmm. so it was very exciting to be on the team. Although I wasn't involved in any way with the computer work, I was working amongst. I was over there in that facility, watching all the computer stuff come together, sitting on the meetings where they said, you know, how are we going to do this? I mean, they came right. up with. So many things that are just traditional today. I remember them sitting and saying, okay, well, I guess we'll have to do this. And they coming up with binding and a bunch of technical stuff I won't get into. But it's yeah. the ability for the – I mean, it's an armature. And somehow right. you've got to make the, the skin stretch and bulge and do things like that. And it was all new, all new at the time and um, very exciting. I was doing paint work. They had, you know, digital paint for the first time. That was crazy new. I was painting some of the dinosaur skins. And then I somehow fell into the role. They would do a shot and it would be like 85% of the way there. But there would be like, you know, oh, there's this one part where there's a matte painting or there's, I mean, a matte line. Or there's one part mm. where the dinosaur's foot goes through the log, you know, but it's so <laughs> close. And these things take forever to render. And right. so they, they would have me take the shot, I would go into, by then we had Photoshop running on an SGI, right. and I would go to the frame, and I would paint <laughs> out the problems, 
And right. I would do the last, you know, the last 5% would right. be doing paint. <laughs> and I did a lot of that. I did a, <laughs> a lot of painting on scenes. I touched most scenes in some way or right. And that's what I ended up doing. And I was I was really fascinated by the technology. I had already uh, bought a home computer and learning how to, you know, type and work in basic. And I was I was really intrigued by computers as soon as they came out. So right. I really felt like I wanted to be part of the, the computer department. And uh, right. I did. I made the transition over there, work on a number of the computer heavy projects. The thing about Jurassic, it was like Empire. When we were working on Empire, we knew the whole world was waiting to see the movie that we were working on. I mean, it's right. really an amazing thing. You just know here we are in this little shop in San Rafael, and the world is interested in, and we knew that they would they would like when we were done. And it was the same with Jurassic. Nobody knew it was coming, but we knew that when it came out, it was going to make a splash. Because, I right. mean, we would sit there in dailies and see these giant dinosaurs eating, you know, tree leaves. <laughs> amazing. So that, it was, that was an exciting project for that reason alone. I was lucky where the first Star Wars that I got to see in the theater was the special editions. And so I know... You didn't get to work on the original Star Wars, but then were able to at least put your fingerprints on Star Wars 20 years after the fact with A New Hope and Special Editions. And I'd love to talk about that process and how you got involved and then the, the actual daily work you were doing for, for those. Well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, the first one I started working on was uh, Empire Special Edition. Mm -hmm. And the way it worked was uh, George, it became apparent that George was trying to see what we could do so right. that he could get a sense of what he could expect us to do whenever he got around to making the next trilogy. Right. So he was throwing problems at us that were, that were <laughs> tricky, given right. the current technology. Also, George, given a choice, George prefers to spend as little money as possible. And uh, so we were using people who weren't on other projects to do the work, and that included me. So I think that's how I think that's how I got chosen because uh -huh. I was currently between projects. So the challenge was we weren't always given all of the resources we would have liked, right. and we were also not not always working with the keenest talent, including myself. So <laughs> we did you know we did what we could, and George was very much involved in the decision making. Right. I mean, he said, "Here's what I want to do," and you know, it wasn't us going in and saying, "How do we make this shot better?" It was George every step of the way saying, "I want to put a ship here. I want to you know put a bunch of banthas over here. Here's some right. outtakes from the first film." It's like. What? <laughs> but it, that's, that's how he liked to work. Uh, right. The big challenge, you know, was like the stuff where there was transparency because the matting wasn't as, you know, they didn't have digital matting in those days. Like right. the snow speed where there's clearly transparency in the cockpit. That stuff was great. That was easy yeah. to do. Clearly improved the shots. Clearly was the shots as the guys who worked on it in the original ones wished they had looked. Right. But some of the others, you get into some very tricky areas where are right. you improving the shot or are you changing the shot? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was really George's call as to how far we push things. But I, I would have to say, I think in many cases, to my eye, we didn't improve things. But, you know, <laughs> but it was, you know, it was what we did. It was what right. we did. Um, you know, the first time he did special effects, special edition on the first film, 
It was they added some shots, you know, right. they cut out some stuff. It was it, I think it was it was the right balance. But uh, as we went on, it, things yeah. got crazier and crazier. We were doing stuff in Cloud City that made no sense. We were taking out hallways and walls. And it was just, I think George wanted to see how far he could push us. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, that's what we did. That's interesting. Did, were you, because I, I just talked to Don Bees um, yeah. two days ago, three days ago, and we were talking about the Wampa scene, yeah. especially. It was fun. I've also, I've interviewed Howie Weed as well. Yeah. Um, He's in the suit, right? Yeah, he's yeah. he's the guy. Uh, and what always like what you're bringing up is not just improving shots, but the creation of new shots to then match a, a 20 year old movie is very interesting to me. Of how like setting up a new set and like building a new world that also matches like the Wampa had to match uh, something you already saw on screen. What was that like for you, and how involved were you with that? And kind of what was the process you had to go through at least to make that actually feasible? Yeah, I, I don't remember too clearly. Uh, it was, uh, I remember the set. It was on our main stage. And, yeah. um, you know, as far as the lighting and all that, that's really up to the, the, the right. <laughs> and, yeah. uh I did, I did some directing. I mean, basically, I would I would kind of uh, get everything set up and we'd do a couple takes and then George would come in and he would, you know, he would, he would call action a couple times and say when he was happy. So yeah. that was the process as I recall it. Incredible. I mean, again, your career spans decades and incredible work and, and really just thank you for, for coming on. Is there anything, as we wrap up, anything that sticks out to you as you kind of look back on your career and like especially you were in this wave of, of changing technology that you can't go to a movie now that's not affected by the work you and your teams were doing over the years. Is there anything that now sticks out to you in, in hindsight that you're really proud of or that maybe was a, a, an enormous challenge that, that you're glad that you surmounted in some way? Well, I, 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 nothing jumps to mind. I, I loved watching the technology change. I mean, we did, I remember doing a shot with Joe Johnson on Empire Strikes Back where it was literally some black cloth and baking powder, you know, <laughs> right. that was, that was the technology. And by the end it was all, I mean, it used to be a big part of a supervisor's job would be decide how are we going to do this shot as you went right. through the script? Cause they had to know so that they could budget it. Right. And by the end, it wasn't how are we going to do this shot. It was oh, we'll do this in the computer. Good idea. <laughs> Next shot. Oh, the computer. Yeah. So right. it was. I I have to say, I feel like the computer has brought just amazing opportunity right. to filmmakers. And I go to films now, and I see stuff that just blows me. I see stuff on television that blows me. Right. I mean, God, I was watching this chimpanzee on the Umbrella Academy mm. last night. Oh, my God. It's just yeah. amazing stuff. Well, one of the 10 finalists for visual effects this year is a documentary. I right. mean, they're using effects everywhere. And right. I, I think it's exciting. I felt like when I started at ILM, I had maybe one to two years before the whole effects fad blew over. And my, my hope was that by the time effects movies became passe, I would have established myself as just a general filmmaker and maybe go back to Hollywood and continue uh -huh. to make a living. But the effects fad never blew over. It's just wow. incredible. Incredible. And, and even now, like what you're saying, even this past year, I think, has really demonstrated the effectiveness of computers because everyone's doing this from home now, right? Like all the things we're watching, WandaVision or Mandalorian, were all done in someone's living room over the past year, which is crazy. I've, I've been retired for over 10 years now, and I just do stuff on my computer at home that is inconceivable. When I was, <laughs> you know, when I, when I was 14, wishing I could make a monster movie, 
Right. I couldn't even afford a roll of 16 millimeter film, let alone a camera or the yes. processing. I mean, it's just the technology. Compositing, inconceivable then. Right. And now, I mean, making a film on your computer with compositing and, and CG, 3D, I, can, I mean, there's nothing yeah. I can't do on my computer. It's it's amazing opportunity for young people or old people. So right. I do enjoy that. And it was really fun to watch that transition. I really yeah. enjoyed being there as we went from cardboard to computers. It was pretty I love it. great. Yeah. Well, Mr. Carson, thank you for your time and your stories. And obviously, if you cannot tell, I'm just loving it. So thank you for, for coming on the podcast and, and telling these stories. Well, my pleasure. Nice to meet you. Thank you to Mr. Carson for his incredible stories, the amount of time he spent with me, and his incredible contributions to both Star Wars and the world of VFX. Next week is episode number 100, and I cannot wait for you all to hear it. In this lead-up to episode 100, which is crazy for me to even say, I would really appreciate some new reviews on Apple, so if right now you could go to where you're listening to this podcast and leave a five-star rating and a review, it would mean the world. So, until episode 100, stay tuned, leave that five-star review, and may the Force be with you.